Skin cancer. How can a physician detect the early signs of melanoma and non-melanoma? You're listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Mary Lushas, and joining me today from New York is Dr. Desiree Ratner, Associate Clinical Professor of Dermatology at Columbia University Medical Center. Dr. Ratner is board-certified dermatologist who specializes in Mohs Micrographic Surgery, and she's also Director of Dermatologic Surgery at Columbia Medical Center. Today, we're discussing the early detection of melanoma and non-melanoma skin cancers, and how physicians can better recognize and treat this condition. Welcome, Dr. Ratner. Thank you for having me. Can we start by defining the spectrum of non-melanoma skin cancers? The most common form of non-melanoma skin cancer is basal cell carcinoma, and that comprises about 80% of the skin cancers that we see. The second most common is squamous cell carcinoma, which comprises probably 15 to 20, not quite 20% of what we see. And then melanoma, of course, is the smallest percentage, but is the skin cancer that causes the greatest mortality. And what's the incidence in the United States of melanoma skin cancer? Well, in, in the year 2008, just in the U.S., it's estimated that there will be over 116,000 new cases of melanoma diagnosed. And of those, over 62,000 will be invasive and 54,000 will be non-invasive or in situ. Is the incidence of melanoma rising in the United States? Yes, it's rising every year. And what about the incidence of basal cell carcinomas, BCCs, and squamous cell carcinomas, SCCs? For basal cell carcinoma, it's definitely over 1 million and maybe even as high as 2 million cases in the U.S. every year. As for squamous cell carcinoma, it's over 250,000 cases per year. And the incidence is rising of those both cancers as well? Yes but not as quickly as the rising incidence of melanoma. And can we define the at-risk population of non-melanoma skin cancers? The at-risk population principally consists of people who have fair skin and light eyes, and those are the people who are most susceptible to the burning rays of the sun. It's individuals who've had a lot of ultraviolet light exposure that principally develop basal cell carcinoma. However, patients who have had a history of radiation therapy or a history of immunosuppression are also at significant risk of developing basal cell carcinoma or squamous cell carcinoma. And for melanoma, who are the at-risk population? How do they differ? The melanoma population, again, is at risk due to UV exposure, but there are some other risk factors as well. Patients who have a first-degree relative with a history of melanoma have a higher risk. Patients who are specifically red-headed or blonde have a higher risk with blue or green eyes. And the chances increase significantly if you have many moles or larger atypical moles or if you've had a previous melanoma. And how much does sun exposure during childhood affect the incidence of both non-melanoma and melanoma skin cancers? That actually affects the incidence significantly as the vast majority of our destructive or noxious sun exposure is received before the age of 21. And how often is dermatologic screening necessary? Well, it really depends on the patient. For someone with a previous history of skin cancer, they're obviously going to require much more frequent visits than someone with no history. So if it's purely a screening visit for someone with no personal or family history of skin cancer, a once-a-year visit is probably sufficient. And when do you recommend a patient start getting screened? Is there a particular age that you can use as a rough guideline? You know, that's a good question. The the age at which I'm seeing people develop skin cancers ends up now being younger and younger. I'm seeing more and more people in their 20s and 30s. So 
I would say it's reasonable to have the first screening between the ages of 18 and 21 unless a specific lesion is noted prior to that and then that patient should be seen beforehand. And are there particular areas of the United States that people are at risk? I mean, I'm assuming people from California who grew up at the beach or people from the southern areas. Is that a good guideline to go by? It's true that patients who have a greater degree of sun exposure, say in California or Florida, have a significant incidence, but people move around so much these days that someone may be living in Maine and summering in Florida and going back to Maine. So I I don't think it's quite as dependent upon geographic location. If you're just joining the discussion, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on Reach MD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Mary Lushars, and joining me today is Dr. Desiree Ratner. We're discussing the early detection of melanoma and non-melanoma skin cancers. Dr. Ratner, how effective is sunscreen in preventing sun-related skin lesions? Sunscreen is tremendously effective in preventing skin lesions. The essential features of sunscreen are the, the presence of a UVA and UVB block, and then as high an SPF or sun protection factor as possible. I generally recommend an SPF over of 30 or higher, which blocks out approximately 97% of the UV rays. Are there any public health protocols in the U.S. that are addressing this at the moment, or is there some work that still needs to be done in this area? I think we're doing a much better job of educating the public about the risks of skin cancer. There's an advertising campaign going on by the American Academy of Dermatology, which is basically public service announcements to educate patients about their risks. Every year, the American Academy of Dermatology has skin cancer screenings during the month of May, which is melanoma month. And at that time, awareness of skin cancer is heightened and there's a big public education push. Do you think there's any difference when choosing a brand of sunscreen between between one and another? I don't think so. I think the principal features, as I said, are to have a high SPF with UVA and UVB block. The problem is that there are so many ingredients and people have so many allergies that it's very difficult to recommend one over another. The only thing that may be important to mention at this point is the fact that physical blocks such as zinc oxide and titanium dioxide tend to have a a lower risk of allergy than some of the other sunscreen agents. Is there any evidence for systemic absorption of titanium? I know some people with children ask questions about that when choosing a sunscreen. I've actually never heard about that. And um, I've used sunscreen on my kids for years. That's actually the first that I've heard of it. Perhaps it's an urban myth. (laughs) So for physicians seeing patients, what are some tips that you can give family practitioners who are the first to screen their patients for skin cancers? Well, in terms of non-melanoma skin cancer, most often those lesions tend to crust or bleed or not heal. And they tend to be located in sun-exposed areas, most often waist up, but not always. These are... um, generally spots that bleed at the slightest touch and tend to be somewhat friable in their appearance. They can also be scaly lesions that haven't responded to over-the-counter medications or even prescription topical medications as they're thought to be eczema or psoriasis. And if they don't respond to those medications, then chances are it's going to be something else and these, these should be considered for skin cancer. As far as melanoma skin cancer goes, we talk about the A, B, C, D, and E of melanoma. And these are pigmented lesions A stands for asymmetry, where one half of the lesion doesn't match the other. B is for border irregularity. When a lesion has notched borders instead of smooth borders, that tends to be more characteristic. Color differences, if a lesion has many different colors as opposed to being a single uniform color, that's important. And then diameter, is it bigger or smaller than a pencil eraser? If it's bigger than a pencil eraser, chances are that's a higher risk lesion. 
and E can stand for either elevation or evolution. So when a lesion becomes raised or changes after having been relatively stable for a long period of time, that should be a warning sign as well. Can we talk a little about solar keratosis, the definition, and what physicians need to know about how they progress to potential skin cancer? I think of solar keratosis as a marker of significant sun exposure. And when I see those on a patient, I think of them as being at high risk for developing a skin cancer. As far as the risk of any individual lesion of transforming into a skin cancer, that is actually very, very low. And there's considerable disagreement about the numbers, but it's probably less than 5% and maybe even less than 1% for any individual lesion. These are patients who may have so many lesions that they need to be treated as as a group, either with a topical medication or with some kind of resurfacing procedure. And the reason for doing that is if those lesions are cleared, then oftentimes the lesions that don't respond are the skin cancers that have been hiding among the solar keratoses. We talked earlier about the at-risk population for both non-malignant and malignant skin lesions. Are there any particular job categories or sex differences that physicians can look out for in their patients that might alert them to the risk of skin cancer? As far as sex differences go, I don't think there's any significant one between male and female. As far as occupations go, people who have outdoor occupations, such as construction workers or farmers, tend to be at higher risk. People who handle insecticides or metal ores can be handling chemicals that may put them at risk. Transplant patients, that's not a profession, although it can become one given how much these patients have to go through, are also at significantly higher risk of developing skin cancer. Are there other patients who are immunosuppressed for for other reasons that, that are also at risk? Absolutely. Patients with leukemia and lymphoma are at higher risk for developing skin cancer, as are patients with HIV AIDS. I'd like now to talk about what topical preparations are available that can potentially treat non-melanoma skin lesions. You know, the topical preparations tend to work best for actinic keratoses, which are, as I said, the precursors. There is a medication called imiquimod, which has been FDA-approved for the treatment of superficial basal cell carcinomas of the trunk and extremities. It's important to note that this is only an 80 to 85% cure rate, which isn't nearly as good as any of the other procedural modalities that we have. And right now, that's the only FDA-approved medication for skin cancer. Are there significant side effects of that medication? Yes, significant crusting, scaling, oozing, at times bleeding. It's not a comfortable medication to apply. Is there a risk of allergy from the base of that population? I've never seen anyone develop an allergy. The only thing that the um, caveat that the company provides is that too significant absorption of the drug can cause flu-like symptoms. So this is meant only to be applied to small areas, not large ones. And is there a duration of treatment that's recommended in terms of a time frame? Essentially, three times a week for six weeks, six to eight weeks is the time frame for basal cell carcinomas. What is the role, if any, of chemical peels, uh, particularly of the facial area, in treating uh, non-melanoma skin lesions? I don't think chemical peels have a role in treating skin cancer. As I mentioned earlier, they may be helpful in sort of clearing the field so Mm -hmm. that those lesions can be detected at an earlier stage. Is there anywhere that uh, physicians or the public can go to learn more about skin cancer in general and the early detection and also prevention? Absolutely. The American Academy of Dermatology website, which is www.aad.org, would be an excellent place to start. And in terms of 
training for the family practitioner, where would be a good place that a family practitioner could go to gain practical skills in detecting and managing these lesions before they refer to a specialist? Just to get a basic introduction, I would actually suggest that they take a look at the e-medicine online textbook. There's an entire dermatology textbook which has sections on skin cancer, which have digital images, and, and this would actually be helpful in, in uh, honing those basic skills. Well, thanks very much, Dr. Ratner, for giving us your expertise. And we have been talking today about the early detection of melanoma and non-melanoma skin cancer and how as physicians we can better understand and recognise this condition. I'm Dr Mary Lushaz. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. We welcome your comments and questions through our website at reachmd.com, which now features our entire medical show library in on-demand podcasts. Thanks for listening.